And here, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, uh, pens, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. With Romans 15.4 in mind, I would invite you now to turn to the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 3. That's where we're going to be parking and studying for a few moments this morning. And there are a few things that you need to know about the book of Daniel in order to fully appreciate the book and specifically the segment of the book that I want us to look at this morning. For example, we need to know that Daniel was carried away to Babylon as a captive while he was still just a boy. So he had been in Babylon for quite some time. And Babylon, is, it's important to note, is the place where this book takes place. Daniel lived and prophesied when Babylon was the most powerful empire, empire of its day. And he himself watched the activities of a number of very famous monarchs for almost three quarters of a century. This was a place where Daniel had put down some serious roots. This was a place that He was doing God's will. He was prophesying as God had told him to do. And the latter part of the book, we need to know, is highly apocalyptic. Now, don't worry about that because we're not going to be getting into the latter part of the book this morning. But it is figurative in nature. Much of it is, much like some of the book of Revelation is in the New Testament. But our concern this morning is only for two specific chapters. So we want to look at chapter 3 and also chapter 6. And don't worry, we're not going to be going verse by verse, and so we're not going to be spending a whole lot of time. But those are the two chapters that we're going to be focusing on this morning. And and so we also need to know that the language in these two chapters is very straightforward. It is not to be taken figuratively or allegorically. By the way, before we get to chapter 3, you knew that was coming, didn't you? I am a preacher. In chapter 2, we contain some vital information about the coming church. And and Daniel prophesies about the nature of the church, the timeline of when the church was going to be formed. And this information is revealed as Daniel interprets this dream for King Nebuchadnezzar that no one else was able to interpret. So there is a backstory to that, that if you haven't read that lately, I would encourage you to go back and reread that because it's fascinating. And also to note that there's some information contained in chapter 2 that is contained nowhere else in Scripture. Let me give you just one example of that. Like the time frame of the coming church is found here. Daniel prophesies that when the church of the kingdom of Christ is established, it will be during the days of the Roman Empire. There's no other place in Scripture that I know of where that is prophesied. And guess what? He was exactly right about that. And the final thing I want us to note before we get into the actual text is that there is a succession of kings that appears in these first six chapters, so don't get confused. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was taken away because of pride in chapter 4, verse 31. Belshazzar then takes over for his father in chapter 5, verse 1, but then he's later killed in verse 30. So what I'm saying is he only lived for 29 verses. Darius the Mede takes over Babylon at the age of 62. That's in chapter 5 and verse 31. 
Now, don't let the succession of kings throw you off track as we walk through some of this account. We're going to specify what king was in place and in power when these events take place. So let's look at probably one of the most famous uh, chapters or segments of, of scripture anywhere in the Bible as it pertains to three men and a furnace. And let me also say in, in a self-deprecating way, I have preached on this passage many, many times. And once when we were living, I may have told this story on myself before, but once when we were living in Atlanta and I preached on this particular passage, and as we were driving home, one of the girls from the back seat said, now, now what was it that the three men were thrown into? And I said, the, uh, the fiery furnace. They said, well, why did you call it the furry fireness for the whole lesson? And I said, just to make sure everybody was paying attention. Well, as chapter three, as chapter three opens, King Nebuchadnezzar is in power and he has instigated a compulsory state religion. He did that by building a gold statue that was nine feet wide and 90 feet tall. Now, if you could just imagine the immensity of that, again, constructed by, in gold and, and that he erected that, the Bible record tells us, in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then he pulls together all of the head politicos in the kingdom to come to a ribbon-cutting ceremony for this new image, which was, and it's important that we appreciate this, nothing more and nothing less than an idol. So when the king decrees that you are to bow down before this idol, then you are, you are or this, this, this monument, that you are performing an idolatrous act. It's critical that we understand that portion of the narrative. And the king says to those that he's invited to the ribbon cutting ceremony, you be there or else. And they kind of look at one another, I suppose, and say, well, I don't think I've got anything on my schedule for that afternoon. So here they are, and they're gathered in the plain of Dura, Basically, a bunch of yes men standing there in front of this 90-foot-tall golden image for the dedication ceremony. And then the king has a herald or a spokesperson to tell them that the statue is there for more than just aesthetic admiration, which I imagine they were smart enough to have already suspected. That is, you're not to just admire its beauty. And he reads a decree that has been issued from the very room of the king himself that says, in effect, that when you hear music of any kind, then you're to fall down and you are to worship the image which the king has set up. In fact, he said, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and every kind of music, it's time to hit your knees and bow toward this image. Anyway, that was the deal. And the king was absolutely serious about all of that. And we know that because of verse 3, chapter, chapter 3, or verse 6 rather, in chapter 3, everyone or anyone who had the gall not to bow down before the king's image was going to be thrown into the burning fiery furnace. In other words, if the music sounded and you didn't bow down to the image, some government official in an unmarked chariot, are you with me, would pull up next to you and say, have you ever thought about being cremated? If not, it's time to be thinking about it. And also, by the way, you don't have to be dead for that cremation to take place. So things are going along famously, at least according to the king's thinking, according to verse, chapter 3, verse 7. And people are bowing down on cue. No, no matter what their nationality might be, no matter what language they spoke, 
Remember the old maxim that music is the universal language? And so anytime they heard music, they hit the ground and they worshipped Nebuchadnezzar's image. Except, and this is a huge exception, except for three Jews who had been appointed to some pretty important positions over the province of Babylon. Their names, as we know them, were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story, and you've probably studied this since you were small. And the fact that they did not hit their knees when the music sounded really irked certain Chaldeans for a couple of reasons. Number one is because the Chaldeans had to bow down to the image, and they didn't didn't like that. And secondly, the Chaldeans notoriously did not like the Jews, and so they were always coming and telling all the Jews and hoping to get them in trouble. And here was a perfect opportunity to do exactly that with these three men. We'll get these guys in trouble. And we're going to go tell on them. And that's exactly what they did. And so they came before the king and they said, Oh, king, you're the greatest. Live forever. Blah, blah, blah. You know how that goes. By the way, did you know that these three men that you have appointed to some pretty high positions over the affairs of the province, these guys are not obeying your decree. In fact, they pay no heed to you at all. Now, I I, I tend to think that they are exaggerating, but they're trying to be dramatic in order for the king to appreciate how serious this is. And so they pay no heed to you at all. They do not serve your gods, nor do they worship the golden image that you have set up. You need to know what is at stake here. You need to know who the violators are. And the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely infuriated. And he demands that the three men be brought before his throne for a reckoning and they are and the king essentially says is this vicious rumor really true do you really not serve my gods nor the worship the worship the idol or the image that i have set up don't you understand what the penalty is for not obeying my decree and after all who is this and this is where it really gets to showing us some insight about how the king is thinking who is this god that you're serving who, who is it that will deliver you out of my hands? Later on, we'll find out exactly who. But he's asking the question now. I don't think you fully appreciate who you're dealing with here. Is essentially what the king said. That's verse 15. Now, I, I really want us to look closely at their response as recorded in verses 16 through 18, still in Daniel chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, follow along. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered. So who is this God? that you think will deliver you out of my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Do you not think that took some courage just to say that? I don't really feel like I need to answer your question, sir king. And so they're already very bold and courageous in the way they're responding. Verse 17 If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. And then verse 18, but if not, I think this is the demonstration of of some of the greatest faith that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. If not, if he does not deliver us, then be it known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor do we worship the gold image which you have set up. When the king hears that, he gets even angrier. 
And I can imagine his face kind of got scrunched up, you know, in anger as he's looking at these men who dared defy his decree. And then he orders the servants to pour the coal to the furnace and make it seven times hotter than it normally is for such executions. And he picks out some of the strongest men in his army, you know, a couple of guys that he knows has been pumping iron, some, some of these guys that some, got some real muscle, and, 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 and uses these men to cast Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. Now, one item that really doesn't need to be overlooked in this narrative, and that is if you throw men into a fire, they aren't likely to stay there. Uh, you, you probably have heard the story, heard, maybe heard me tell it about a guy who was visiting a, a village where they had kind of replicated the way life was a century ago. They actually had an operating blacksmith shop. And so here this tourist walks into the blacksmith shop and, and there is actually a blacksmith and there he is working over the forge. He's got the fire hot and, and he has just removed, the tourist does not understand this, doesn't know this, but he's just removed one of the horseshoes from the fire and it's only cooled enough that it's no longer glowing red. And, and, the, and the tourist reached over and grabbed the horseshoe. And almost as immediately he threw it down and the blacksmith looked over and kind of grinned at him and said, hot, ain't it? And the man said, no, it just don't take me long to look at a horseshoe. <laughs> well, these men can be thrown into the fire, but they're not going to stay there. And, and so to ensure that they don't flail around and get ashes all over the place, the Bible says they tied them up first. In fact, it goes to some length by inspiration to tell us specific details that I, I think really thread this whole narrative together. And the scripture says that they are bound tightly with their inner garments, their outer garments, and even their hats still on. And they were then thrown into the furnace still wrapped in their bonds. Now get this, because the furnace is so hot, the biblical record says that the heat from the fire burned up the men who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. That's how hot it was. They got close enough to the fire to throw them in, and they themselves were consumed. And then verse 23 simply says, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now this is where a really strange uh, twist in, in the storyline takes place. King Nebuchadnezzar is sitting nearby to watch all of this, I, I guess to make sure that it's carried out properly, and, and I imagine to gloat. You know, like, where, where's your God now, huh? And so he's sitting nearby and watching all of this. He does some quick math. And he says to his advisors, hey, didn't we throw three men into the fire? Why is it that I see four men walking around in the midst of the fire, unburned, unbound, and unharmed? And that fourth man looks like a son of the gods. Now, I will allow you to spend some time this afternoon speculating about who that is. I have my speculations, but that's an interesting uh, thought process. Who was that? Nebuchadnezzar comes to the door of the furnace in order to get a closer look, and he screams into the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come on out of there. And they come walking out of the fire. That's verse 26. And all who were present saw that the fire had done them absolutely no harm. In fact, the Bible again, goes to quite some length to tell us that their, their clothes were not scorched, their hair was not singed, 
and they didn't even have the smell of smoke about them. Well, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a changed man with a brand new perspective on things. And here's what he says. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel. We know who he thought was in the fire with the three men. Who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set at naught the king's command. He's talking about himself there. They, they defied my command. They set at naught the king's command. They yielded up their bodies rather than to serve and worship any god except their own god. Now, the king apparently had not heard about run-on sentences, but at least he got the point. And then he sits down and he makes a decree that says that anyone who speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is going to be torn limb from limb. And just for good measure, we're going to bulldoze your house. Because there is no other God like the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he bought the three men into his office complex. He gave them all a big promotion. And, and hold on for a minute. We're not quite through. Flip over to chapter 6, if you will. We are, after all, talking about men of faith. And I want to talk about one more man, and that's the one after whom this book is titled. Sometime later, the Bible says that Daniel had a very similar experience with King Darius. Not in that he was thrown into a fiery furnace, but that he defied the king's orders and he was called on the carpet for it. Now, we need to know that King Darius, well, I think it helps to know that King Darius came two kings after Nebuchadnezzar and, and we're now in Daniel chapter 6. And this time Daniel is even higher up on the chain of command than were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Cream has a way of rising to the top. And that's certainly what had taken place with Daniel. In fact, the Bible says that Darius set up 120 satraps. Think of that kind of as governors of a state. These are men of great authority. And, and he had set them up all over the province and all, all over the kingdom. And, and over those 120 governors, there are three vice presidents. I guess considering this is a monarchy, you might think of them as vice kings. But anyway, they're kind of three prime ministers. And Daniel was one of those three men under the authority of the king himself. So when we're introduced to Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, he is a man who already is important. He has some power, at least uh, by, by implication, because he is working for the king and just under his authority. And then the Bible says that Daniel soon rose above all the other, the other two vice presidents and, and governors because, look at verse 3. And I think this is astounding and so telling because there was an excellent spirit in him. If you don't think that a good attitude will help you go far, then you need to think again. If you espouse the principles of Christianity... If you attempt to live as an ambassador, as you walk in this world for Christ day by day, appreciate the fact that having a good attitude will really help you sell Christianity to others. And, and I don't mean that in any kind of dis, dis, disrespectful way, just the opposite. People will be impressed by that. They certainly were with Daniel. He had a great attitude. In, in fact, the Bible says that the king planned to set Daniel over the entire kingdom. He really liked Daniel that much. Well, the other presidents and the governors, they get jealous. And they began thinking about some grounds that they might have on which they can lodge a complaint against Daniel. But they can't find anything. 
I mean, they can't say anything bad. Uh, you know, they've got their heads together. They cannot think of anything bad about Daniel that they could say. So there's no real complaint that they can lodge to the king. So in that little meeting with these men, they, they say, what is the only thing that Daniel and the king don't see eye to eye on? It's religious differences. So if we hope to, to drive a wedge between Daniel and the king, it's going to be on the grounds of religious differences. So these 122 men come in mass before the king, and after the obligatory, O king Darius, live forever, yada, 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 they then began to present their case. That's verses 6 and 7. And they say, we think you're such a great guy that you should make a law that anyone who petitions any other god or man other than you should be thrown into the den of lions. It would certainly make the lions happy. And so they, they went on to say, try it for 30 days and see if you like it. And draw up a decree and sign it. Include a clause at the end that says that this, this law cannot be revoked. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's happened before in scripture. The book of Esther is another example where those who advised the king said, put a clause at the end that says that nobody can revoke this particular law. And so King Darius, having his ego sufficiently stroked, does exactly what they advised him to do. And as soon as Daniel knew... Well, maybe I should say, because I'm kind of reading into it now, it, it seems as if as soon as Daniel heard about this decree, this law that had been signed, you cannot make a petition to any other man or God other than the king. He goes into his house where the windows of the upper story face out toward Jerusalem, the holy city. And as was his custom, he gets down on his knees and he prays to God just like he had always done. Three times a day. Now mark this down. Daniel apparently did not have to debate about whether that was the smart thing to do or not. It's almost, again, as if he heard that the king had made a law about you can't petition any god or man other than the king himself. And Daniel kind of says to himself, hmm, that sounds like something I need to talk over with God. Appreciate the irony. Verse 10. Now, just as they had hoped, Daniel keeps up his prayerful petitions. The men come as a group to Daniel's house and they find him much to their delight in the very act of praying. Now, they take some kind of evidence. Maybe it's nothing more than just eyewitness report. They come back before the king and, and they begin to report that Daniel is defying your law. And they tell the king Darius, O king, don't we recall you signing into effect a law that says that anyone that petitions any god or man other than you within 30 days will be cast into the den of lions. And the king said, you got that right. The law stands. It cannot be revoked. He remembered at least that much of the law that he had written. And they responded, we hoped you'd say that. We need to tell you that Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no heed to your law whatsoever. In fact, he flagrantly prays to his God three times a day, right at his window where everybody in the world can see him. He is deliberately flaunting your authority. And the king is really upset about that. But not for the reason that you might imagine. The reason he's so upset is because he really likes and admires and respects Daniel. And he tries to sink some way, some loophole, whereby he can get Daniel off the hook and he will not have to enforce the letter of the law. And he thinks about it and he agonizes about it until the sun goes down, but he can't come up with anything that will save Daniel. 
And the, the rabble-rousers say, well, just for the record, O king, we remind you that no ordinance which the king has established can be changed. This thing's already been notarized, and so it's set in stone. And the king reluctantly agrees. And so he has Daniel brought, and he has him cast into the den of lions. That's verse 16 of chapter 6. Upon doing so, he says to Daniel, and I would imagine somewhat wistfully, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Notice the word continually there. He had seen consistency in the life and behavior of Daniel. So the Bible says they brought a a boulder and laid it on the mouth of the cave. It's really a pit in the ground where the lions were kept and where Daniel had been thrown. And the king seals the den of lions with his own signet ring, indicating that it was done by his authority. And with a sad heart, he leaves goes back to his palace, refuses to eat, tells his secretary to hold all of his calls. He lies down on his bed. He's staring at the ceiling and he is unable to sleep. He is so torn up over the fact that this man that he admired and respected has been, through his orders, has been thrown into a den of lions. And little does he know that while he's tossing and turning back at the palace, that Daniel is doing just fine in the den of lions. I would imagine that that Daniel fluffs up a line or two to lie back down on. Takes a good book that he has been putting off reading until he has some downtime, and he lays back and begins to read between the lines. No extra charge. And the biblical record says, as soon as the sun came up, the king ran to the den of lions to check on Daniel. He knew what he hoped But he also knew what he expected to see. He really expects to have to ID Daniel at this point with dental records. You know what I'm talking about. But after, at the mouth of the den, he shouts, Oh, Daniel, has your God been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel responds in effect, Okay, here, sir. And and Daniel goes on and said, "God, God took care of me. He shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I am innocent and I have done no wrong. Verse 22 And King Darius is absolutely ecstatic. And he commands Daniel to be taken up out of the pit. And sure enough, there's not a tooth mark or a claw mark on him. And the king says, well, looks like the lions are still hungry. So he has the men who got Daniel in trouble thrown into the den of lions. And just as an object lesson, he has their families thrown in too. This is a king who does things always 100%. And just to prove that there's nothing wrong with the lions, the biblical record actually says that before these people hit the floor of the pit, they were torn into shreds. There was nothing wrong with the lions. The king then goes to his royal office. He writes another decree to the effect that God's, Daniel's God is to be acknowledged and reverenced. And then what he says goes... Like this, we know because the Bible tells us, this is verses 26 and 27, if you're still following along. For he is the living God. What a transformation has taken place in the mind of King Darius. Enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of of the lions. What a transformation has taken place between the ears of the king. And the Bible says that Daniel lived and prospered under the remaining reign of Darius and then during the subsequent reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let me draw just a few lessons 
Because if we look at this only from an historical perspective, it's really not done us any good at all. I think there's some takeaways, some lessons that we can learn from the wonderful story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as Daniel, that are applicable to our lives today. Let me suggest some, and I know that there would be others that you would think of, but number one is simply that our allegiance to God must supersede loyalty to any other person. You remember when Peter and some of the apostles were told to no longer preach anymore in the name of Jesus in Acts 5, verse 29, their response was, we must obey God rather than men. Now, that's a principle that's established 2,000 years ago, but it's still true today, isn't it? God's people still need to have the courage and the fortitude to say, we will always, in every circumstance, obey God and not what men say. But, But what if it gets you in trouble? Whatever. We're still going to obey God, and we're going to do his will as best we can. Here's a second lesson. Proper worship, and I I really hope that this was one that you thought of, that proper worship offered to the true God of heaven is a very serious thing that should not be taken lightly. Remember, all four of these men were willing to die over how and when and where they worshiped God. They were not going to negotiate, and so they were willing to put their lives on the line for the the right to worship God the way he needed to be worshipped or the way he expected to be worshipped. Here's one that I think very clearly comes from this wonderful narrative, and that is that all things really do work together for good to them that love the Lord, as Romans 8.28 affirms. And also this lesson, those who oppose the ways and the will of God will eventually have to suffer the consequences. Proverbs 13.15 says the way of the transgressor is hard. Well, that's, that's for a reason. Galatians 6, 7 says you reap what you sow and all the nefarious people in these narratives got what was coming to them and that certainly is a lesson that we need to appreciate when we study this biblical account. Here's another lesson that trust and faith in God will carry us successfully through any difficulty and any circumstance in life. These men had faith that was willing to carry them, were able to carry them through the hardships and the storms and the difficulties of life. I, I don't think any of us Well, let me correct that. I know that none of us have ever had to face a fiery furnace or a furry fireness, for that matter. None of us have ever had to be threatened with being thrown into a den of lions. So we've never had to confront those kinds of choices in our lives. But we still have to have courage, don't we, in a woke society to live the way God would have us to live. To make the choices that are necessary to make as we live for Christ in this world. So trust in God will carry us successfully through no matter what the difficult circumstance may be. And that we should serve God continually. I emphasized that word when we read the text a moment ago. But the king acknowledged that about Daniel. That you, this God whom you serve continually, just as Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego did, it must be consistent. We must not be sunshine patriots. We must be people who live for God every day of the week. And that finally, I remind you that a great attitude will help you go far. We saw that in Daniel's life and experience, and it's still true today. So like Daniel, we really need to keep our windows toward Jerusalem open, don't we? I mean, that's so important. And when I read this, every time I read it, I I, I reappreciate, and I think I appreciate even more how, how important it is. That we always keep our windows toward Jerusalem open. That we keep our line of communication and our communion with God always open. And keep our minds and hearts attuned to his will in our lives. Just as these four men of faith did. Mark it down, folks. 
We're either opening our windows toward Jerusalem or we're pitching our tents toward Sodom. And there is no middle ground. Let me ask you, as we end this lesson, do you have that kind of faith and courage today? Do you think that you could do what these men did when their lives literally were on the line? Do you have the courage to stand against the world and to do the right thing, no matter how many people may believe that you're dead wrong? Do you have the faith in God to do God's will, even when things, things don't work out in this life? I, I want to go back and read verses 17 and 18 one more time, because I want you to leave with this thought in your mind. When, when, when these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were told, you have to bow down before the king's image, Remember in verse 17, if that's, if that's the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. That's faith in, in, in the idea that God will take care of us and he will see us through. But watch this. Here's the proviso. But if not, verse 18, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor do we worship the gold image we you've set up. So their faith had two parts. Number one, we think God will deliver us. But if he doesn't, we still aren't going to do it. Whatever it was that you commanded us to do, to bow down before this image and, and treat it like we're not going to do that. And if we die, we die. Do you have that courage to stand for God when the whole world is standing against you? If not then sadly, perhaps you're not kingdom material. But if so, you will be rewarded beyond your wildest expectation. And that's what we call you to this morning, while we stand and while we sing.